I was the first woman officer to work for the supervisor shipbuilding where we supervised the building of 688 class submarines and that they didn't know what to do with me and they stick me in an office. So a lot of times if somebody doesn't know what to do with you, tell them. Be confident, be bold, be authentic, but don't forget to take action. This is Ordinary to Badass, where our stories empower women to step into the spotlight of their own lives and pursue what they're truly passionate about. It's time to step into the arena and become more than just extraordinary. It's time to become a badass with your host, Marie Sonneman. Welcome to Ordinary to Badass, episode number 281. In this episode, you are going to hear from Tina Irwin. And Tina is a ghost helper, and she teaches the living how to help the dead. But you want to hear something crazy? We didn't even get to talk about her being a ghost helper. I know, it's crazy. So we might have to have her back on so we could talk about that. But what we did talk about was her experience in the Navy. And she was assistant chief of staff and did a lot of cool things and was the first woman officer, at least in North Carolina. And then she was also the first instructor. So she did so many things and paved the way for so many women. So we just focused on that. If you want to have her back and you're interested in hearing about her being a ghost helper, let me know. Reach out to me on Instagram at Ordinary to Badass. Let me know. I have no problem bringing her back to talk about the ghost helper stuff because that sounds cool too. So before we get to the episode, I got to tell you, it's the new year. We're 30 days in and I feel so behind and so ahead all at the same time. I don't know. So I've been spending so much time just meditating and also cleaning and getting rid of stuff and organizing and it really feels good. I've never been a super organized person, but just really decluttering and getting rid of stuff has taken a weight off me. So I haven't done as much on social media or with the podcast and like advertising. The podcast has shown up like it's supposed to, but there's just a lot going on. So I haven't advertised for it like I'm like I would like to, not supposed to, but like I would like to. But you know what? It's okay. The way I'm figuring it is I'm taking a break from a lot of things, but then I am working on other things like organizing my house and decluttering and that feels good. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're not where you thought you would be, or you're not where you thought you would be, or your priorities change, that's okay. If we knew every single step of the way, every single thing that would happen in life, wouldn't that be a little bit boring? So I'm going to say, take time for you. Do what you want to do. Forget some of the shoulds or supposed tos. And I know I get caught up in, in it too. Heck, I even said it on this episode already. <laughs> but it's okay to take time for you and to go in a different direction for whatever feels right for you in the moment. All right, let's get to the episode. Welcome 
to Ordinary to Badass. Whether you're ordinary or badass, I am so glad you're here. Today's guest is Tina Irwin. Tina, thank you so much for being here. Excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just thrilled to death. So before we go any further, I've got to ask you, do you consider yourself ordinary or badass? Oh, I am absolutely badass. Yes. <laughs> Have you always felt that way? Always. For a little, from the time I was a little kid. It was one of these things, don't mess with me. <laughs> so what do you attribute that to? Where do you think you got that from? That's a, that's a really important question. I think I'm the oldest of four children, and I was put in the position of being responsible for my siblings from the age of five. And, and it was one of these things where if you don't figure out your situation quickly, things can go bad quickly, even, you know, when you're dealing with your siblings. And so I always had, maybe it was just this inner feeling that I can do it. I got a lot of confidence from my parents. And I found that a lot of times in school systems and in other places, they didn't always give little girls or teenage girls or women the belief that they could do it or that they could have that strength within themselves. And I just decided that I could have that and I didn't need somebody to give me permission that if you're going to go for it, go for it. And I viewed all of the situations that were presented to me, and some of them were very hard, as opportunities to decide who I really am. And so that's how I moved forward with it. And I had some really, really tough situations where I was the only one that took a particular stance. And then afterwards, people came up and said, wow, we realized you were right and that we're in a bad place. It's like, yeah, we're in the middle of a war right now, and we need to get out of the country. Sticking around is not a good idea. But I was told that because I wanted to leave, I was a bad person. It's like, that's your opinion. Yeah, I'm only 18, but it's still your opinion, and I believe I am showing better judgment than you who are in your 60s. So if you if you can find within yourself a deep and abiding belief, then that would be it. How do parents foster that in their daughters, like that deep and abiding belief? Or what did your parents do to foster that in you? My parents seemed to believe that there wasn't much I couldn't do. And I mean, I was just really an independent person. Part of it's personality and part of it's um, my, my parents did believe in me. They absolutely believed in me. And if there was something that I couldn't do because I was told I was an idiot in math, which is really not true. Uh, something little girls were told in the fifties because I'm really, really old. <laughs> but some, but what we were told was that we were not smart when it came to math and science. Again, not true. So my parents hired tutors so that I could understand it in, in the way that my brain works. Sometimes women's brains work differently than men's brains. And I learned a lot from having brothers. Men don't think the same way women do. And if you can hear their language and copy it, they can hear you and respond to you on a one-to-one -one 
not I'm up here and you're just some woman. Okay, I can't wait to dig in to find out more details. First, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? I um, went to college uh, in North Carolina. I have a degree in industrial relations, a master's in management. And um, I graduated from UNC at Chapel Hill in North Carolina in 1972. No one would hire me because I had the long anatomy. And so they had some Navy recruiters on campus, and they were the most adorable guys I'd ever seen. <laughs> Clean cut, super handsome. And I thought, well, you know what? I don't want to be a martyr. I don't want to spend the rest of my life fighting for the right to have an equal salary. Congress says if you're an ensign or a lieutenant, they have to pay you the same amount as a guy. That's for me. So I marched down to my Navy recruiter's office and got all dolled up, did hair and makeup and a short skirt and walked in and he said, here, fill out this form. I filled it out in front and the back and all these extra pages. And he said, now you're a little overqualified to enlist. And I said, I want to be an officer. He said, well, we really haven't had any officers come from North Carolina. Well, I'm going to be your first. <laughs> That's to me. Okay, so he walked my application through the Pentagon, and I was the first female officer from North Carolina in what he knew in memory. So I went to officer candidate school in 1972, and the Navy didn't know what to do with women. Admiral Zimwalt was the chief of naval operations. The Vietnam War was at its height, and there were 95 women in my officer candidate class in Newport, Rhode Island. And um, if I was really honest, I would tell you that I joined the Navy to find a husband. And that was true. But it was also true that I wanted, I wanted responsibility. I wanted adventure. I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in a small town in North Carolina, as lovely as some of them are. And I, I got into the Navy and I met and got engaged to a guy, and then I had to convince the assignment officer to send me to New London, Connecticut, where he was going to be stationed. They didn't have married officers in the Navy in 1972, 1973. That just didn't happen. And I said, why not? And they said, well, men are good officers if they're married, but women aren't. And I said, why is there a double standard? And they said, well, we don't know. And I said, well, don't you think it's time to break the double standard? So I convinced them that I was engaged with Ring to this guy, and they sent me to New London, Connecticut, where they build submarines and they have a submarine base. They still have a submarine base there. And the first day I arrived, my boyfriend and I, my fiance and I had a massive fight. I walked downstairs. And I met the most adorable guy who looked like Superman. He had the birth control glasses and was tall. And I went, oh, my gosh, I'm engaged. In a couple of months, um, my husband, um, we managed to tell the guy I was engaged to that I wanted all these things he didn't want. It. He broke the engagement. He saved face. There was another really important element. If you're going to deal with the men and women, if you can enable them to save face, then your relationships long-term will be much smoother. The man who was engaged to me got me to New London. He wasn't a bad person. 
he was a connector person. So he told everybody he dumped me, worked for me. And then I met my husband in March of 73, and we eloped in um, October of 73. So we've been married 49 years. Still married the same guy. So I was the first woman officer to work for the supervisor shipbuilding where we supervised the building of 688 class submarines and that they didn't know what to do with me and they stick me in an office so a lot of times if somebody doesn't know what to do with you tell them you have far more power than you can ever imagine that you have and they said, well, you're going to be the, you have to receive for all 688 class new construction submarine communication gear, which is built by the army, which was very difficult to manage. In the meantime, my best friend was the first female admiral's aide in the Navy, tall, gorgeous, blonde. And her father had been an army general. And I learned a lot about how the military works and how to play politics. An awful lot of people say they don't like politics. The problem is everything is politics. And if you don't wrap your head around it and learn how to play that game, there's a part of you that will always feel like you're on the outside. And it doesn't mean you have to compromise your ethics. And I feel like this is a big issue with an awful lot of people is compromising ethics. And I have to say that you can do it and not compromise ethics. And she had some astounding situations that faced her as well as I did. But because she had been sent to Naval Submarine School, the Admiral said, well, I want that gorgeous blonde as my aide, not realizing that she was really, really, really smart. And the, the captain of Submarine School said, well, I want a woman off to replace her. I'm going to take, you know, Tina. And... So I was like, okay, I get to submarine school and the executive officer says, what would you like to do here? And I said, it's a school. I want to teach class. And he said, women don't teach class here. I said, how hard can it possibly be? Men do it. You know, dude, it's a, it's a school. People teach. You've got a curriculum. How hard can it be? He did not laugh. I thought it was hysterical, but he didn't laugh. My job was to open mail for a lieutenant commander. It was really boring mail, horribly boring. So I said, send me to instructor school. And I drove them nuts, begging them, pushing them. So finally, they said, all right, just to shut you up, we'll send you to instructor school. Oh, thank you, you're so sweet. So I get out of instructor school and it's like, okay, what class am I gonna teach? And I can teach this class and this class and this class. And they said that, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. So I said, well, I'd like to talk to the captain of the school. So I walked into his office and I was super respectful. And I said, sir, I know that in the history of Naval Submarine School, you have never had a woman officer as an instructor ever. But Admiral Zumwalt is fostering more women in the military. And imagine the publicity you would receive furthering the mission of the Chief of Naval Operation, opening this door, the publicity. We'd be in All Hands magazine. It would be amazing. 
he looked at me and he said, that is a great idea. And in that moment, I became the first female instructor in the history of submarine school, opened up five additional jobs for other women, officer and enlisted. And they're still teaching today. So what did I teach? I taught the sealed authenticator system. It was the system that tells the captain of a submarine when to launch a missile. When in how that whole, how do you authenticate flash traffic that comes in that says, okay, we're going to send the world to hell. How do you do that? That was what I taught. And I designed and helped with curriculum and I was locked in a vault with 25 of the cutest guys you have ever seen. So no guts, no glory. It's a military thing. And if men see that you have guts and you're not fearful and you don't have a chip on your shoulder, you can go a very long way. And after that, the submarine force sort of looked after me and helped find me jobs. And the interesting thing for me is that they would move me from place to place. In Italy, I had I managed all the human resources for one of the commands. Well, we moved to Charleston, South Carolina, and I was an admin officer. But the executive officer, who was the second in command's wife, was dying of cancer. And he said, I want you to be the XO. And I'm, and I'm thinking, I'm a lieutenant. I'm just a lieutenant. And he said, you'll be a really good XO. So in that moment, I became, even though I was the acting XO, the first female XO for a submarine training facility. And then um, we, I got uh, my command, I made lieutenant commander and was head of a personal support detachment. And I had 150 people, civilians and military people working for me. And we paid um, 10,000 people every payday and travel. We did a lot, a lot. And we were treated like crap by all of the ships on the waterfront. So I interviewed every captain and we got plaques from all of the ships. And we made the whole crew proud of where they worked and what they did. And we demanded respect from all of the other activities, which made that the staff, I didn't have the same staff turnover. I had military and civilian, but people enjoyed working there. And the morale was, it was really, really wonderful. In the meantime, through all of this, I had two children. And one guy said, you know, I don't think you can help me. I mean, you know, I said, I'm pregnant. I'm not mentally retarded. And a lot of times men don't know how to relate to you because they've never had the experience. And again, you have to tell them. You have to tell them how to relate to you. And you have to see men for the goodness that's within them. And that's one of the things that was very obvious to me. When I took over uh, the submarine training facility in Charleston, I had a, a master chief petty officer who worked for me. And the woman who'd had the admin job before me told me that he was, he was incompetent and impossible and a horrible man, horrible man. Well, I went through his service record and I started doing some research. Well, this guy works for me. And I discovered that not only was he not a horrible man, he was one of the finest men I have ever known. And I still connect with him today. And I informed 
the staff that this man was the you know second in the department and restored restored the respect that the command had for him he went on to be the command master chief he went on to be the command master chief for the entire submarine base in charleston it was a very very big deal and it changed his life because he was going to retire when women go out of their way to find something good about the men who work for them and promote them and help them move forward what happens is you develop this body of reputation information that puts you in a position to really help other people and it forces men to see women differently we're not the enemy i saw that a lot in the 70s so earlier you mentioned that you have to learn to play their game and I'm, this isn't just men, but this is probably politics, just different arenas you're in. The people that you're around you have to learn to play their game. How did you go about doing that? I love languages. And men speak a different language than women do. Women say, oh, I've got a hairdresser's appointment. Right? That's what we say. I'm going to see my hairdresser. Men say, hey, I'm going to get a haircut. Well, everyone knows you're going to get a haircut. You'll be back. It's not a big deal. But when you're going to a hairdresser, they think you're going to be gone all day and that you're slacking. It's it's just terminology. So I would say, hey, guys, I got a haircut. You know, I'll be back. Or I'm going to leave early. I got a haircut. I'll see you in the morning. If you have children, <clears throat> guys have kids too. You have children. You don't say, oh, my kids were kept me up all night, you know, and I got to take them to the doctor. You say, Hey, I got a doctor's appointment, you know, I'll be gone about two hours and I'll be back. What happens is a lot of times women provide way too much information and men don't care. If you can listen to what they say, which causes the acceptance, then if you follow that lead, then you now have entered the rhythm of their world. Because the truth was, I had to enter their world. They were not entering mine. I walked into a world of submariners who have their own language, their own customs. And even though I was married to a submariner, I still had a lot to learn. And one of the big issues was fitness reports where they tell you whether you did a good job or not. And learning how men write fitness reports was completely, women couldn't get promoted because their fitness reports looked horrible you know she's really cute and sweet well you're not going to give somebody command if they have they're cute and sweet you have to i found out because of my husband who said you're never going to get promoted with that this is how it has to be written so i'd give him the information and he would write it and then they began to teach women how do you how do you project yourself it's another thing women are very humble oh well you know i just helped out yeah, you did, but you're not going to get promoted if you don't say, well, I handled this many millions of dollars and I got this done and I got this done and I got this done. It doesn't mean you're an egotist. It means that how do they know whether or not you can do the job if you don't tell them what you did? That's a very powerful thing to do. I had uh, the most challenging job of my life in the Navy was... They left Charleston and they didn't know what to do with me. So they sent me to what's called a tight commander. And it was, I went to 
work on the staff of Commander Submarine Force U.S. Atlantic Fleet. And they had a job that was not career enhancing for guys. And they said, hey, you know, we got a woman coming, so we'll just give it to her because it's not going to be anybody's career enhancing job. If a guy gets that job, he's never going to get promoted. So it's like, okay, what do I have to lose? So the job was, I couldn't believe I couldn't understand what it was at first. I was the assist, I got a cool title, the assistant chief of staff for force physical security, anti-terrorism and law enforcement for Commander Submarine Force Atlantic Fleet, which meant I had to protect from terrorist attack 86 submarines, nine submarine tenders, three submarine bases, and the senior Jewish admiral in the Navy. And I had no idea how to do that job. I had $100 billion in assets to protect. And I had two mentally retired people to help me. And I went home and cried for three days because I had no idea how I was going to get that job done. It was, you're set up to fail. And so I asked my boss, since I didn't know how to do my job, if I could research. And he said, yeah, whatever you want to do. I don't care. Okay. So I traveled to the submarine bases and I talked to the security officers at the bases. And I got someone to connect me with SEAL Team 6. And I got them to show me what all the vulnerabilities were. And then we sat down and built a plan. And over three and a half years, for the first time in history, we put nine sub we put nine devices on submarines and 12 on submarine tenders and we beefed up security on all of our submarine bases and all of that security and all of that work if you go on any submarine base you will see all that work that was done all those years ago is still there it changed the way the navy did business and then i walked the piers and i talked to all the topside watches and i said tell me how vulnerable you are and these young kids would say to me, Commander, I'm going to be dead. I am a freaking sitting target. And I'm going to die. I'll be the first one to die, and then we're going to lose the submarine. And so by enabling those people who would never have a voice to have a voice with someone at a higher echelon in the whole command structure, their voices were heard, and every device that I gave them had to be non-lethal. Imagine you're protecting $100 billion in assets and you can't use a weapon. That was a huge challenge, but there's some astounding devices out there that worked really well. And apparently I got a lot of respect from the entire fleet. And everywhere I went, I was well known, and one of my jobs was to protect the three-star admiral I worked for and I went to brief him and I said you know when you're flying this is in the late 80s early 90s that you know when you wear that admiral's uniform and the super scrambled egg hat you are a target I need you to wear these kinds of clothing and I'm going to train your aid and I'm going to do all of these things but I need you to do this too and he said I like my uniform and I like my hat what are you going to do about it? And I said, you know, Everell, if you don't care if you die, then why am I going to care? I'm telling you how to protect yourself. 
You can choose to do that or not, but that's what it's going to take to keep you alive. Are you with me or not? And he said, I met him on a submarine one time and he's in the, you know, a blue shirt and a nice jacket. And he said, see, Tina, I did exactly what you said. <laughs> and job, Admiral. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it's so interesting going back to when you said you went and talked to everybody, like regardless of what their rank was and you found out the details and found out what was really going on. And I think that's an area that women shine, like women in leadership shine and like listening to different perspectives, different points of views and not being so, and of course this isn't all women, you know, but uh, not being so egotistical to think that we know all the answers to everything. That is a, that's a very good point. When I had the, I had command in Charleston and I had 150 military and civilian, I interviewed 150 people to find out what the command needed. I was jaw dropping what I heard. And these were people who were E1s. They, they had just joined the Navy and they felt like no one gave a damn. And that enables me to sit down with the, the enlisted leadership and say, we need to treat these people better. We need to do a better job for these, for these guys. This is incredible. And I, I think that women bring a different perspective. My husband was um, executive officer on a submarine tender, had 1,400 people on it. 400 of them were women. And it was the first time they had taken a ship into a combat zone during the Iran-Iraq war. And they were blowing up the oil fields um, all those decades ago. And so he's taking all of these women to sea. And I had the reverse problem. I'm dealing with all of the husbands who are left behind with children. It was this whole non sequitur. This isn't, this is a whole new world and helping them and what we had to do. And, and I said, so, you know, Troy, what's your observation with women on ship? He said, they keep their spaces neater. They come to work on time. They don't get drunk. They don't have the same problems that men do. And, um, I had one captain say, well, you know, women can get pregnant. And I said, okay, women get pregnant and they have the baby and they come back to work. And I said, I've got a hundred limited duty cases here. 10 of them are women because they got pregnant or they were injured. 90 of them are men because they fell off motorcycles and ladders or they did dumb stuff. We're all the same. Things happen to us. We take care of each other. That's what the Navy is. We'll all get through it. And it, I think if women have a presence, it's called command presence, where you're confident enough in yourself, you force people to believe in you. Even if you're not even sure you know what you're doing, you can make it happen. You can change the lives of a lot of people in a really great way. And then you develop a reputation for caring about your crew and your crew will go to bat for you and cover your ass over and over. If they believe or your staff or whatever industry you're in, they will go to bat for you if you care for them. And that kind of hits on the next question that I wanted to ask is how you go about making change. Um, sometimes you're going to make waves, you know, but how do you go about making change in a way that 
other people will listen to you. You follow the law. As an example, it's uh, 1976, and my husband and I are sent to Naples, Italy. And <clears throat> the, the, the detailer or the assignment officer is cutting cost orders, meaning the Navy pays for the orders to send you to Italy, and you get a weight allowance. Again, and women officers were new. And he said, well, we have orders for your husband but you're going to have to pay for your move and your airline ticket. And if I were weak and fearful, I would have said, okay, I'll do that. It's like, I learned how to swear in the Navy, so I won't swear on the podcast, but <laughs> I said something. And then I got the, the uh, Bureau of Naval Personnel book manual out and I quoted, I called him back and I said, not only are you going to pay for my orders, and pay for my weight allowance and pay for my airline ticket. If you don't, this is a violation of the Uniform Code of Military Justice because it says in the Bureau of Personnel, you have to do that. And I would hate to have to take you to task for that. So these are the orders we want, and these are the day we're leaving. I got cost orders, and I watched those detailers pull that on woman officer, after I watched them do it over and over again, and every single time I went back to what does the law say? What does regulation say? And forced their hand. And I want it every time because you can't, you can't go against that, that element of law. So for people that aren't, maybe they're not in the military or not in law enforcement or something where that applies, would it, I imagine that it would still be the same thing as like following the policy right? Yes. The, the policy can't be selective, especially in these times. And if you, if you have a policy that says you're going to do this for these people, you can't then selectively say, we will do it for these 200 people, but this one person, we're not going to do that. Can't, it cannot be that way. And when you point out that it puts them in a very awkward position again have that person who's really screwing up say face are you really sure you want to do it this way and sometimes you really have to stick your neck out to to especially if you're standing up for someone and i've stood up for many a guy who said you know i did this i had one guy who was trying to do something he was doing something on his own personal time for the captain and the captain was really angry because it wasn't right. And I said, whoa, 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 captain, this, this service member did this on his own time out of his own pocket for you, which is technically illegal. So we need to either back off or you need to change your requirements. He said, oh my God, I had no idea. And I said, I didn't think you knew that. So if you don't know that, let's change what we're doing. And, and it, it makes a difference. For instance, there were several situations where there were women who worked night and day to get men in trouble. And some of them were really egregious cases. One of them was a, a young woman who claimed that the senior chief petty officer had made sexual advances to her on watch late one night. And this man had an impeccable record. It was stellar. I mean, there was never a hint, nothing. And he was facing court-martial, and she's eating this up with a spoon. And the captain of the activity asked me if I would speak to this young woman. 
and I had a I, I had a different command, and I said, I'll, I'll be glad to talk to her. He said, you're our last hope, because if the investigation, she, she won't waver, that she says he did these terrible things. His marriage is destroyed. His, his career is destroyed. He's losing face with his children. He's denying it. I said, and I didn't know this guy, so I'm completely neutral. I said, she comes to see me, sits down, and she talks to me, and, and, and I told her that I was in, asked to inquire about what was going on with her. And she said, well, he did this. And I said, okay. And then I took a really different tact. And I said, so tell me, how old were you when you were first sexually assaulted? She said, I was 10. And I said, how long did it go on? She said, till I left home. And... I said, how do you feel about that? Well, they gave me attention. They loved me. So when someone is assaulting you or something's happening that gives you, makes you feel better. And she said, it surely does. And I said, is that why your husband is always in the brig? Because he's defending you because someone's assaulting you? And she said, well, he does love me and he gives me a lot of attention. And she had... A mental illness. She had an immature personality disorder, a narcissistic personality disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder from so many times being sexually assaulted. I said, the senior chief didn't assault you, did he? And she said, no. But I was bored, and he was just really nice, and he, he wouldn't do anything. And so I called the psych ward. I had her evaluated. She reiterated it again. All charges were job, dropped against the senior chief. And again, it helped my reputation because I went to bat for him. She needed psychiatric help. She really, really did. She would have done that to, I can't tell you how many other men. And so you have people who do these things and you have to be scrupulously fair. If a woman's doing something wrong, you have to stand up and say, this isn't right either. Yeah, I think that women have come a long way. We've come a long way with our rights, but I don't think that it needs to be an us against them. We don't, you know what I mean? There's great things that women provide. There's great things that men provide. And I think that we both have a different set of qualities or characteristics, different things that we can bring to the table. And previously I had Catherine Switzer on the podcast. And she was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon. And she was like, well, actually, men were some of my biggest supporters. They were ones that helped me get through that time. And I think some women were kind of nasty to her for being the first one to run the marathon. But it's like, I definitely think it comes from both sides. Support comes from both sides and kind of highlighting the diversity because there's a lot of diversity or a lot of difference between men and women. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. As I got farther along in my career, there were a lot of contractors who were retired Navy captains, and they'd take me, there were a couple of them, would take me into a back room, close the door and say, listen, this is what you need to do with your career. Watch out for this and watch out for that. This is the politics and you didn't know that, but we're gonna give you the inside story. But it happened to me, I don't know how many times, I was so grateful to, I loved these guys. And I think if you care, if you do your job well, I mean, that was the story in Hidden Figures in NASA. 
And these were women who did their job well. And you earn respect. It can't be handed to you. You can't go to the store and buy it, and you can't legislate respect. You have to earn it. And the woman who, you know, running the, be the first woman to run the Boston Marathon, she earned respect. I mean, and each woman who earns that respect paves the way for women. I mean, there was no such thing as women on submarines when I joined the Navy. They're women on submarines now. They began to see us as equal. And one of the things that happened was men began to realize that there were so many personnel problems. People are people. They have things happen to guys. And if you have an advocate and you take the time to care about what's happening with your crew or your staff or your people, then you build a basis of loyalty that gets you through really hard times. I can't, I can't reiterate that enough. I was asked to be the EXO of a um, ballistic missile submarine, the Georgia. And I said, I'm not wearing dolphins. I'm not qualified in submarines. I'm not a qualified engineer. Not qualified to do the job. That was the only time I ever told somebody I wasn't qualified. And he said, yes, but you would know the crew. I could cover for you. I said, I don't want anyone to ever cover for me. They either know how to do the job or I can learn it, but I don't want you to cover for me. And I don't want somebody to say, well, she's not an engineer. She's not qualified in submarines. I'm not. That's the truth. It's to tell the truth. It will, it really will set you free. So earlier you talked about being the first, the first woman to be an instructor. Sometimes for sometimes it can be hard to be the first at anything right and oftentimes women will put it aside or be like oh maybe i'm not qualified maybe i can't do it um say it's a primarily job with males how does it how do you go about being the first and taking that on you have to be a person who loves a challenge and it has to be it has to be something that, one, even if you don't think you know how to do it, if you have enough confidence in your ability to learn, you can get it done. And you can't possibly know it all the first day. Everyone has a first day. I mean, I didn't know how to do that job, you know, fighting terrorism. And, and so I went to terrorist school. Let me tell you, I did not have problems with my teenagers when you know how to blow up planes and airplanes, you know, planes and buses. I contacted SEAL Team 6 and I sat down with the head of SEAL Team 6 and I said, I don't know how to do this. I want you to teach me. And if you teach me, we'll bring SEAL Team 6 and we'll do runs against the submarines, something you've never done before. And he said, okay, I like a challenge. And I went to the bases and I talked to the security people. And I said, what do you need? What's upsetting you? And they said, well, we have this problem and this problem. So I assembled the list of the problems, started studying, went to school for it, found the best of the best to teach me and built a massive program that's still in use today. 
And when I walked through that door, I knew zero how to do that job. And I figured since they had zero expectations for me, what's the worst that could happen? And it turned out to be very career enhancing. So let's end with a tip to encourage women who are in the arena fighting for the life that they want. I would suggest that you study what it means to be courageous. No guts, no glory. Know yourself first. Who are you? What do you want to be remembered for? What do you want to, to be... What do you want people to be able to say about you? And it was that you weren't afraid. And if fear dogs your days and nights, then work on yourself. Find out why are you so fearful? Did something happen? Find someone who can help you with that. But conquer your fear first and then decide that courage, courage is action in the face of fear. That's what it really is. And when you have faced that, there's a part of you that grows inside on levels you didn't know were there. I mean, the first time you pick up your child or the first time you do something scary or your first plane ride, maybe it's scary for you, but when you've conquered it, you're a different person. We don't come here as human beings because it's easy. We come here for the opportunity to learn and every experience, even if you fail, do you have moments where you screwed up and you did it wrong? Do it right the next time. Figure out what you can learn from it. It's not a mistake. It's not a tragedy if you have learned enormously from it. Find your courage. Find that piece of steel inside your backbone. And then go forward. And, and don't decide you're not qualified when you first see it. Decide that you can learn and you can become the best qualified person ever. So powerful. I love that. I love how you said, like, you don't come up, you don't become a human being to be easy. You come to learn. Oh, to beers, soak that in. And Tina, how can we connect with you? I, by the way, I'm also a psychic. So I have a, a, a website, ghosthelpers.com. I help people cross over their dead relatives and I teach them how to do it. So if you don't have a psychic, you can do it yourself. I have eight books out on everything from grieving and ghosts to uh, crossing over the dead and I spend a lot of time discussing karma which is if you show courage you incur really positive karma in a lot of moments so ghosthelpers.com or tinairwin.com I have two websites check out the books they can be really helpful thank you so much Tina you've been a total badass and I've enjoyed hearing your story thank you so much Marie have a great that <laughs> and with that we'll end our show to all the badass women out there staying in the arena, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, own it and get after it. Okay, here are five takeaways from the episode. Number one, everything is politics. You can be political and not compromise your ethics. Number two, learn to speak the language of the people you are around. Number three, take the time to care about your crew, your staff, or your people. Then you will build a basis of loyalty that you, that'll let you get through the hard times. Number four, I don't know how to do this. Will you teach me? Number five, know yourself first. Who are you? 
what do you want to be remembered for? All right, make sure to tune in on Thursday to hear three reasons why Tina Irwin is so badass. Talk to you then. Now that you've listened to this episode of Ordinary to Badass, we want to hear from you. Go to our website, OrdinaryToBadass.com slash podcast and submit your own experience on how you took your life from ordinary to badass and get the chance to be on a future Spotlight episode of the show. That's OrdinaryToBadass.com forward slash podcast. While you're waiting for the next episode of the show, wipe off the sweat, dust off the dirt, and get back in the arena.